So, uh, welcome everyone. Um, I'm Neil Lawson. I'm one of the partners at Jericho. I'm going to hand over in two seconds to Matthew Guayver, um, my one of the other partners at Jericho, to to run the conversation with our esteemed guests, um, who I'll say more about at the moment. Just to say, first of all, that um, Jericho has been looking at this issue of the relationship between uh, business and democracy for some time, and we've committed ourselves, working with others, to uh, launch a, a, a short and sharp commission in the new year to examine the relationship between uh, business and democracy, to assess first what's going, what's the context of the debate and what's going wrong and what the problems are, and then to begin to look at some of the solutions, uh, some of the way forward for ways in which business can both deal with internal questions of democracy, but what its external relationship is to other stakeholders and not least to government and the running of effective modern 21st century um, democracies. If anyone uh, on the call tonight or listening to the podcast wants to get involved in that democracy we're looking for partners we're looking for ideas we're looking for support help connections networks etc because this is a big subject way bigger than just uh, a Jericho so we're looking for people to talk to so if you if you can do get involved uh, and and connect with that either me Neil at, at, um, at Jericho or, or with Becky Holloway um, whose addresses and email addresses you'll have or we'll put in the kind of podcast notes etc. One of the reasons why we've got to this point is because of a series of articles appearing in the FT by one Mr Andrew Edgecliffe Johnson the FT's US business editor who'd written some really really interesting long-form stuff you know starting with America because it's kind of worse depending on your perspective, but I would say worse in America. But the parallels between America and the UK are so close because of the similarities of our democratic system about kind of what's happening with, with business, both in terms of its relationship with government, but all of the stuff coming down the track of the kind of the, you know, the culture wars, how do you deal with Ukraine, etc. And it was partly Andrew's inspiring articles that made us focus on this and want us to lead us into running this uh, Business and Democracy Commission. So thanks for doing that, Andrew, and setting us up and, and giving us some thought leadership on this. So over to you, Matthew, to, to run the conversation with the wonderful Andrew. Thank you, Neil. Um, welcome, everyone. Um, it's cold outside, but I hope it's warm where you are. Um, it's great to have Andrew with us for this latest in the series of Jericho Conversations, because in his reporting and commentary, he's charted the emergence of a new corporate consensus around purpose-driven businesses and the role that they ought to play in society. And he's covering the pushback that's occurred from skeptics who are worried about corporate overreach with greenwashing and indeed what's become known in the state as woke capitalism. Um, now, when I was thinking about this, Andrew, earlier in, in the year, when I was writing a piece about, for the Times, in fact, about the nature of the relationship between the Johnson government and business generally, which was which was very poor. And, you know, famously, Johnson's res response was F business when, you know, potential concern came from them about Brexit. And one of the I more pithy um, descriptions of the relationship between government and business. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I was conscious that the paradox is that the, we're living through a period where actually businesses have perforce themselves become probably more politicized than we can remember during our lifetime. And therefore, in a way, business and government should occupy increasingly common ground. The whole ESG agenda means that the, the concerns for business have become far broader and fuzzier and more difficult 
to negotiate than even 20 years ago. Now, of course, we've we've had this backlash, and I think the most prominent uh, voice in this country has been from Terry Smith, who's very much of the sort of old school. In He was insisting that shareholder return should be front and centre of all managers' minds, um, and he had a go at the corporate virtue poster child Unilever, didn't he? Um, yep. And he was pillorying them for wokeness. He asked what the what the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise was. And he, he said, Andrew, we believe that the Unilever management or somebody else, if they don't themselves want the job, should surely focus on getting the operating performance of the existing business to the level it should be before taking on any more challenges. Um, and to counter this, uh, the ex-Unilever CEO, Paul Polman, said that he thought if the world's problems couldn't be solved by government, then business indeed should step up to the task. And he said the political system that has been designed to deal with global issues from the time of Bretton Woods in 1944, when 80% of the global wealth was in Europe and the US, has changed. Now we can be cynical about politicians, we can be mad about them, we can laugh at them, but that doesn't serve anything. We as business people have to fill that void. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... I mean, I thought that was a pretty bold statement coming. From <laughs> How did you respond to that? And what are the pros and cons of people in business moving into that void? Well, I, I think it's a it's the perfect case study, actually, because Unilever is the company most often held up as the avatar of this new, warmer, fuzzier form of stakeholder capitalism that has gained ground over the last, particularly over the last five to 10 years, uh, but kind of accelerating, I'd say, over the last four or five years. Um, and when I started my job as US business editor and started writing about this, uh, this whole theme of the kind of the death of the second death of Milton Friedman and the the rise of this this kind of new framing of capitalism, um, and I launched with my colleague uh, Gillian Tett a, a newsletter called Moral Money to look at this whole sort of um, this whole spectrum from ESG investing to stakeholder capitalism. Um, I used to joke to my colleagues that we have to be able to get through the first three paragraphs of a story without mentioning Paul Polman, because he was the sort of, you know, number one case study of a CEO who role modeled this whole idea. But what Polman is doing there in response, you know, to Terry Smith's uh, attacks on Hellman's, Hellman's purpose is actually saying the quiet part out loud, you know, more and more business leaders around the world feel that they have been forced to take a more active social and environmental role because governments aren't doing it. You know, governments are in a retreat or they're distrusted or they're dysfunctional. And I think what we should remind ourselves to frame this whole discussion is just how much government has actually outsourced to the private sector in recent years. Now, you, know, you, you and I grew up in the sort of Thatcher privatization era and, you know, Sid and, you know, buying shares in British gas and things that weren't, you know, that, and literal privatization. But I think on top of that, you know, just think about what governments have shifted and democracies have shifted to companies, you know, provision, provision of education and training, you know, infrastructure investment, there's a you know, provision of healthcare in the United States, you know, where you don't have the NHS, you, you need a job to get health insurance, you know, pensions, obviously, but also how we're going to get plastics out of rivers or how we're going to keep, you know, the temperature from, from 
escalating even further around the world. You know, how are we funding the US response to the opioid crisis or, uh, or greenhouse gas emissions? Well, it's lawsuits against Big Pharma, you know, Purdue, McKinsey, Walmart, and it's windfall taxes against you know, BP and, and, and ExxonMobil. You know, so there is already you know, a sort of tacit admission from the public sector that the private sector you know, should be doing a lot of this stuff. And yet there is an inherent friction in that because nobody elected Paul Pullman. Well, exactly. Pullman wasn't even elected by his own staff, was he? Um, so if we're talking about, you know, Unilever still not a democratic institution, is it? I mean, you you might veer towards it as a as a graduate looking for a job. And I remember someone last year from Unilever telling me that I think they have more applications now than than any other corporate, certainly in, in the UK, from young people coming out of you know A levels and, and university. But I wonder, I wonder what the problems with this are. I also wonder if business's reputation is, is sufficiently good to sort of take up the reins. I mean, the big business gets involved in democracy story here in London this week is Baroness Bra, Michelle Moan, you know, and she's ostensibly going in to try and help government out during pandemic. And then we start to discover that the whole thing is really rather kind of mucky. I, I mean, I think, first of all, you know, the agenda, the, the agendas of the public sector and the private sector are fundamentally different and always will be. Um, and there's a lot in that question. I think, um, uh, you know, is, is Paul Pullman more um, democratically accountable than Rishi Sunak? Um, uh, Paul Pullman could turn around and say, well, yeah, I have to, 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 to keep my job, maybe not to get my job, but to keep my job, I have to keep tens of thousands of employees sweet, the board of directors are fairly senior people sweet, and I have to keep hundreds of thousands, if not millions of consumers sweet. So there is a kind of dem democracy in our choices about whether we buy Ben and Jerry's rather than Wall's ice cream. Actually, I think that might be a Unilever one as well. But um, but you know, the decisions we make every time we go to the supermarket, the decisions we make when we're applying for a job are a sort of small D, they're, they're small D democratic decisions. I, I just did a long piece on for the FT Weekend magazine about Walmart. And, you know, I think most of us you who've know, been around for a while probably still think of Walmart as the sort of biggest baddest representative of corporate America. You know, we think of it as a low-wage avatar of globalization, shipping everything in from China and resulting in the you know, closure of every mom and pop shop in, in, in middle America. Um, and yet, if you look at what Walmart now does under the ESG umbrella and the broader corporate purpose and responsibility umbrella, it is a dizzying array of things from raising base level wages from to 15 to 18 to 16, well from so nine dollars to about 17 dollars in the last several years um to having a policy for everything from tuna fishing in the marshall islands to soil health in the midwest you know and they have bee relocation experts you know to to help the pollinators um the endangered, you know, pollinators of the planet. So 
if you my my sort of I've come to the view now that if you want to change the world, you know, if you want to save the whale, um, do you stand outside Westminster? Do you put a tent up in front of Congress or in front of the White House? Or do you actually wave a placard outside the annual meeting of Walmart or JP Morgan or BP or HSBC? I think what we're actually seeing is the, the people who genuinely want to save the world or the whales or the bees or whatever it is, are realizing that where power lies right now, or certainly accountable power, the kind of power that might listen to one person with a placard, is in the corporate sector. You know, and we have lived through a period of massively increased rise uh, corporate power. And we might feel very queasy about that. You know, the left, I think, traditionally has always felt very suspicious of corporate power. What's fascinating now, particularly in the US, is to see how uh, unsettled the right feels about corporate power because yep. yeah, this this is not the same value set uh, as, as the you know, current conservative value set in this country. Um, but I do think, you know, if you stand outside Walmart's annual, annual meeting saying, save the whales, Walmart's board of directors is going to turn to their CEO and say, how do we get rid of this annoying guy with a placard? And that doesn't actually happen if you stand outside Congress because they have, to put it politely, other interests, which may yeah. be political donations from Walmart. But yeah. um, so um, I, I think we have to understand big companies as power players on these issues. But what what's going on in corporate America at the moment? I mean, you've been reporting today on the fascinating ding dong between Bluebell Capital Partners and Larry Fink of BlackRock, where um, Fink made a big statement about ESG and investment, didn't yeah. he? And now they're kind of trying, it's quite, it's slightly unclear whether they're trying to attack him for hypocrisy or they're trying to attack him for being a woke capitalist and therefore not concentrating on the knitting. But I mean, it's true within large swathes of corporate America, you can't even sort of mention climate change, can you? It's mm. not something that's accepted broadly. There. So I, I, I think two things are going on. One is um, the politicization of certain topics from climate change to diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, and some of, some of these attacks on BlackRock, particularly, <clears throat> and Larry Fink is a donor to the Democratic Party, um, as well as running the world's largest asset manager. Um, so there's a, there's a political aspect of that. He's a very tempting target for a lot of people on the right. I think when we see a Republican-controlled House of Representatives come in in January, one of the first things they'll want to do is haul Larry Fink up for uh, sort of humiliation, sorry, for, for hearings, um, um, just because it's going to be fun politics and a good Punch and Judy show. But I think there is also a genuine debate happening about the financial and fiduciary merits of an ESG slash sustainable slash inclusive version of capitalism. And so Paul Polman, to come back to that example, has been saying for several years since pre-pandemic, since he was still in his Unilever job, there is no longer a trade-off between doing the right thing for your shareholders and doing the right thing for a wider set of stakeholders from your employees, your consumers to the planet. Um, I think that has become something of a consensus in 
big companies. And I, I do distinguish between the kind of giant multinationals who feel a lot of pressure from all over and much more likely to be, uh, you know, to have a, an activist environmental and social agenda. And then the kind of, you know, third generation car dealer or, you know, local factory that wants to be left alone to bribe the local congressman and pollute the local river. You know, um, but the, I think we're most, this conversation is mostly talking about is big businesses, which is where the power lies. Um, but I, I, so I, I think you've got a confluence of a, of a politis, politicization of topics and a, a more sort of valid discussion about short-term returns versus long-term sustainability. And most of, you know, the big CEOs I speak to have convinced themselves that, you know, they're not going to take even too much short-term pain in terms of shareholder returns by pursuing um, environmental and social policies such, you know, such as come under the kind of critique of work capitalism umbrella. Um, and that they're doing this in large part to mitigate risk, you know, the yeah. risk of having factories flooded or having walkouts from disaffected staff or nasty headlines or unpleasant yeah, Twitter campaigns. Um, but they're also doing this with a kind of long time eye on how do they attract the young consumers they want? How do they attract the, the young employees they want? But there are examples in the States that where, where they come unstuck with this, haven't they? And you did a fascinating interview with Shorts and Starbucks a couple of months yeah. where he was all, you know, he appeared to be a, you know, a placard carrier for inclusive capitalism and you know that you know the greatest friend of all his employees whom he calls partners and and then suddenly when they try and unionize it all goes a bit sour so how does the sort of the s part of the esg look for starbucks at the moment then because he of course tried to stand for office as well didn't he yes as a as a third party uh, candidate and and i think by the way that is a reminder that you know the way the business leaders understand politics is very different from the way politicians understand politics. And when we've seen Mike Bloomberg, you know, Howard Schultz, Bob Iger, you know, flirt with the idea of running for office or, or go further than flirting, you know, throw a billion dollars at the idea as, yeah. uh, as Mike Bloomberg did, they don't get very far. Yeah. And that's quite a sobering Why is that though, Andrew? Why do you Well, think I, I, I think they're different games. I think yeah. you, you know, running a big company is not the same as, as you know, playing off the different constituency, constituencies you have in politics. And I also think there is more of a danger in the corporate world of being surrounded by yes men, and they're often men uh, who tell you you're, you're wonderful and you're a genius and um, you should absolutely be president. Um, but I, I just to sort of get back to the Starbucks question, yeah. I think this is a fascinating test case of um, the tension between voluntary and enforced action. And so much of the ESG and social responsibility agenda that is pushed by large companies is we're going to do these things which we think are nice and right. But if you tell us we have to do them, either through legislation, regulation or unionization, we're going to say, well, hold your horses. You know, no, we, 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 we know what's, you know, we know what the best thing is here. We don't want to be told what the best thing is now. Um, obviously, in this in this country, we see vast amounts of money being spent on lobbying and political contributions to uh, shape legislation yeah. and regulation. Um, 
we are, you know, living through a very interesting um, uptick in union activity in this country. It's still a relatively small portion of um, of the workforce even now, but I think it caught Howard Schultz, who you know, who, who was growing Starbucks in, in the first time around in a very different climate. By surprise, you know, yeah. he was at one removed from the company while he pursued political ambitions and um, you know, philanthropy and things like that. Uh, but the the question now is whether the the workforce has changed so fundamentally that he, who had been so successful at setting out that sort of voluntary agenda of doing the right thing by your employees, um, can actually make peace with. A workforce that doesn't think that's enough. Sure. It wants more formal protections. I suppose the other example one could think of in the states of a company making a very definite political stance on something was Disney in Florida, wasn't it? Where yes, they, again, where the company where the old CEO has come back um, yeah. uh, recently. So um, this was a, a mixture of a kind of fumble on Disney's part and opportunism on the part of Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. And you know, the context here was Republican politicians had started to see that this woke capitalism, anti-ESG, um, culture war narrative was doing very well for them. And I remember going to Davos in May this year uh, and meeting a senior former Republican and saying, you know, why, why is your party banging this drum? It seems a bit kind of um, a bit recherche, you know, a bit niche. Not how many sort of primary voters wake up in the morning and think about ESG or even know what those initials mean? Why are you going on about, you know, what BlackRock does with its asset allocation? That doesn't sound the most populist message. And he said, it's, it's easy politics. You know, this is, we're, we're not going after ESG, we're going after an elite yeah, that has lost touch with our voters because we've become a populist party. And so um, remember that framing. But so we'd had a few, um, you know, some salvos in this shots fired in this war already. Um, we've had the whole um, fight over education and textbooks in the US over the critical race theory, um, the alleged teaching thereof. Up comes a piece of uh, crowd pleasing cultural war uh, legislation at the state level in Florida to. Um, uh, ban the teaching of um, uh, ban, ban, ban books which overtly discuss gender and sexuality to the children under a certain age. Um, the one of the employee resource groups in within Disney, an LGBTQ plus group, says, "Hey Disney, we're a big Florida employer. You know why are you Bob Chapek, the CEO, not making a stink about this?" And initially, the Disney you know, top brass say that we'll have a quiet chat behind the scenes as we always do. That's the way yeah. politics works. Um, and we'll make this go away and it didn't work. And the employees were not satisfied that they were not making a, a more noise. And so, uh, and Bob Jacob Beck eventually changed positions. There was a backlash to that, a backlash to the backlash. But it, I think the kind of dynamics here are populist politicians looking for big targets that will fire up the base on cultural issues. And then within big corporations, uh, uh, you know, uh, pressure from below with very empowered employee groups yep. who don't think twice about calling the boss an absolute idiot exactly. when they're 
25 years old. I'm old enough to remember being sent to do a feature about the construction of Euro Disney in Paris. And I knew that facial hair was banned among Disney employees then. I remember getting into an extensive discussion rather than argument with their head of comms. Yeah, you know, expressing individuality was not... No no facial hair works for us, he said, and that was the end of the... That was the end of the story. That's why you and I went into journalism rather than uh, We're never going to be appearing as Mickey or Goofy in in Florida. But one of the things that's come up in discussions that we've had of Jericho about this is what questions might a company board ask itself to discern whether the path that they're pursuing, consciously or unconsciously, um, to respond to, you know, the, the political sphere is clear appropriate, effective, and and right for that organisation. I mean, it, it seems to me that it, it's yet another burden to, you know, to add to the executive at the head of these organisations, quite how they find that path to virtue. I, I think, uh, we, by the way, we wrote a very good um, deep dive report on this um, for the Moral Money Forum a, a few months ago called When Should Companies Take a Stand? So uh, just Google Moral Money, Moral Money Forum if you want to um, read my colleague Sarah Murray's uh, long form report into this. But the I think of it in broadly three buckets. Um, one is relevance. So what are the issues on which this company absolutely has to t- have a point of view? You know, And that might come down to where are we where are we based? You know, if if something happens in Georgia, it is more relevant to Coca-Cola than to Disney. If something happens in Florida, it's more relevant to Disney than Coca-Cola or Delta or any Georgia-based company. Um, but also, you know, if what we do is uh, provide healthcare to women, then we probably want to say something about the Supreme Court abortion decision. Um, if we only employ men, uh, you know, uh, we're not based in the US, then maybe we shouldn't you know, open our mouths about but this. What, you know. what um, is happening in practice in the States with the issue of abortion, for example, now? Because, I mean, some organisations are paying for, for women who work for them to... Yes, I mean... Um, state so borders, aren't they? I, the, I had a conversation with a senior executive, a chief executive, um, about a week before the Supreme Court confirmed the that it was going to do what the leaked judgment said it was going to do and overturn Roe versus Wade. And I said, what, did, what are you going to do if this happens? And he just smiled and said, competitive pay and benefits. And that was all he would say. And what, you know, the, the way most companies have to, have handled this is to say, we're not going to put out a press release. We're not going to take to Twitter. We're not going to be on the evening news, but we will update the footnotes in our healthcare benefits and so health insurance package to make sure that if you need an abortion and you cannot get one uh, in your your city or your state, uh, we will pay us, cover a certain amount of expenses so that you can fly to New York State or another Illinois or wherever is is offering um, abortion services and have this procedure, we will cover it, no questions asked. And so it's, it's become a I think it's quite an interesting test case of this, uh, and it's landed at a moment where actually many CEOs were deciding maybe we've said a bit too much about too many subjects, and we've you know we are coming under attack from the the populists, uh, and we don't want to make ourselves a target. But just to get back to your sort of your big question, how yeah. do you how do you kind of 
you know, position yourself for, for this new world. I think, you know, you should have conversations about what are the subjects we care about and what are the ones we're going to stay shtum on. I think you do need to review the kind of the internal culture and do employees trust that their concerns are going to be heard by senior management. So when the next, you know, Disney saga comes along, they don't, next don't say gay bill, how are you going to make sure that your um, employee group feels that they have the ear of HR or of the CEO and that you can get them in the room and say, look, we need to have a sort of frank discussion about what we can and can't do. You know, we, let's, let's, you know, don't, don't, your first of course should not be twitter you know, to, to yeah. point about a question in the chat here about pressure of social media you know, right. it should be to me because i you know i want to get this right um but if we don't get it right it could backfire on both of us you know so i, I think there's an there's a relevancy point there's an employee uh, an employee point but i also think there is a much bigger question that companies are now asking themselves and that is about the health of the political ecosystem and what's can they be doing to change the incentives within it so that this kind of you know punch and judy populism might not be the only option for politicians you know so uh, you know we we talk about you know the party of business you know it's the conservative party the party of business the republican party is the party of business you know I, I struggle to to know who the party of business is in either country right now after boris's two-word um you know, uh, blurting out about business sure. after the likes of Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, you know. Um, but I but I think, you know, if we take the most cynical view of the relationship between pol politics and business, which is that all politicians are, you know, bought and paid for by, uh, by billionaires or by businesses, then I think billionaires and businesses should be asking about the return on investment right now. Right. You know, and... Um, uh, but I, I do think there is a more serious discussion going on about how do we start to change the incentives and think about the health of our democracies yeah. and of our democratic institutions. Right. Well, I, um, I've been reading this written by your colleague, um, Martin Wolf, which is, as with all Martin's writings, a sober read, although terrifically good. The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, which is coming out um, early next year. How important do you think a democracy as opposed to an autocracy is for the success of business and capitalism? Because providing you keep your nose clean in China at the moment and you don't start talking about LGBT rights or freedom of speech and stuff, then you're, you know, you're fine to go ahead and make your money, aren't you? I, I think we've all been, we've all had a flashback um, this year to... 1989, 1990, 1991, the fall of the Iron Curtain and this kind of epic, you know, triumphal moment for Western capitalism where, you know, Levi Strauss and McDonald's were opening in Moscow, you know, and th there was this sort of universal belief that that just had to be a good thing. And that was followed, obviously, by the opening of, of the Chinese market um, with China's accession to WTO. Um, now, we are also living in a sort of moment that's questioning itself about globalization, but I think the overwhelming consensus in the business world is that democratic stability is preferable to the alternative. Now, some businesses will always do well in autocracies if they're friends with the autocrat, but autocrats have a habit of being rather capricious. And the rule of law has tended to be a good thing for most law-abiding uh, corporations. So I, I think given the choice, your average multinational, even if they figured out how to work in, in China or Russia over the years, 
um, you know, would would probably prefer to be working in a, uh, in, a, in, a in, in democratic environments where they can. Um, and I think what's happened with Russia since Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a is a perfect example of this. You know, you suddenly have the autocrat putting you as a multinational business in an utterly impossible uh, position. You know, there's not just the logistical. Uh, I mean, obviously, any business operating in Ukraine has you know suffered it, you know, immense human toll, uh, and it's almost impossible to operate. But you know, businesses that have been operating in Moscow. It doesn't look so great now to be um, to be you know, sending tax checks to to, sure. to the Kremlin every year. So, um, but I also think coming back to this point about the um, devolution of um, sort of political functions to business, you know, when we wanted to sanction Vladimir Putin, that's sort of before most Western capitals had got their sanctions packages together. McDonald's was pulling up, pulling out, Levi's was pulling out, Starbucks was pulling out, banks were pulling out. Even those nasty, dirty, big oil companies were among the first to move you know, because they had joint ventures with Russian partners and it yeah. was just impossible to sustain. So I um, I think, you know, most of the, the, the overwhelming consensus is that democratic stability is good for economic stability. But Democratic stability was something we thought we could take for granted. Mm. The events from January 6th, 2021 in, in Washington to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine to threats over Taiwan are making companies suddenly think very differently about whether they can take mm. that for granted. But th- does that mean that you think that business should do more to in- encourage people to think about the virtues of, you know, democratic capitalism because it doesn't really i mean you know it 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 sounds like a kind of very rarefied thing for them to be talking about but it strikes me at the moment that the world is dividing into democratic societies and authoritarian autocratic societies we're seeing it in iran at the moment in 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 china where extraordinarily a degree of protest and pressure seems to have you know led led to a change of the rules of code i mean what what can business in and of itself do to, you know, to persuade people of its important value within those cogs? I think it's incredibly sensitive because, you know, first of all, business is so globalised um, now that the, you know, the prospect of being accused of hypocrisy is very real. You know, most, most of these companies are operating, have learned how to operate in uh, countries which don't do very well on a democracy tech test. Um, so, so as a starting point, a certain amount of humili- humility is necessary. But I think within a country like the US, you know, what have we already seen? We've already seen um, companies line up behind get out the vote campaigns and you know, supporting your, the ability of your employees to have a, a couple of hours off or half a day off or a day off to actually exercise their democratic right is a pretty uncontroversial apolitical thing to do. So the right to vote is not a partisan notion. Now, in the US, given the way things are going in recent years, it has been politicised too. When Georgia, the state of Georgia, 
implemented changes to its voting laws a couple of years ago, uh, after after the 2020 election, so last year, um, we had companies like Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, Home Depot, dragged into these fights um, over whether or not they're going to support that legislation, which um, uh, Democrats saw as restrictive and you know, Republicans saw as a kind of safety, you know, protections against fraud. Um, um, but I, I think I, I think there have been opportunities for business to weigh in on um, securing the vote and the, you know, the ability of people to get to the, to, to the, to the ballot box yep. that they have missed. There was um, the late John Lewis uh, had his name on a Voting Rights Act, which business here was very, very quiet about. Yeah. You know, that's it. When things really blew up on January the 6th, we did have you know, the major business lobby groups, the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, the National Association of Manufacturing saying, no, this will not stand. We need, we need a peaceful transfer of power. And again, around the time of the 2020 election in advance, they were saying, the peaceful transfer of power really matters because you know, democratic yeah. stability is essential for economic yeah. uh, growth. So I, I think so many of these ESG questions and and the G, you know, now to, the governance point doesn't just talk, it doesn't just stand for corporate governance. Now it talks for it stands for political and geopolitical governance as well. Yeah. Um, so many of this these these issues come down to. What is the self-interest of major companies? Yeah. And often they're not very explicit about that. Yeah. And I and I often think they could be more explicit. They could say, no, we're not doing this because we're woke, you know, because yeah. we woke up and you know read the liberal media. Um, we're doing this because we think if we don't do this, we're going to lose lose talent. We're going to, you know, our markets will shrink. And sure. you know, we have we have prospered in an age of um democratic growth. Um yeah. There were two fascinating examples of that over here, weren't there? During the during the Scottish independence vote, when the numbers were looking a bit dodgy the week before, Cameron, in desperation, got a lot of the big high street retailers in and said, you know, come on, we want to, you know, you've got to get behind this. Otherwise, you know, yeah. what's going to happen to all your supermarkets and whatever up in Scotland? Then he tried the same thing again um, with Brexit. Um and I think there was a marked reluctance there from people I've spoken to afterwards where he tried to lean on them to make public pronouncements to remain, where, where they were conscious within their own workforce and within their, you know, their own customer base in the red wall or wherever. If they came out and said, right, we, we think we should stay in, then it could be damaging to them politically. So yep. you've got to be very careful, haven't you? Um, how you play things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's a basic fact of life that we live in a more polarised and partisan society than we're used to, less consensual. And so every business will have split opinion among its employees and among its consumers. And I think if you're going to venture into these waters, you have to say, you know, my employees don't all agree with this. You know, my consume, my customers don't all agree with this. I respect their differences of opinion. But let me say, as CEO of Company X, you know, it is in the interest of uh, of our company, the financial interest of our company long term for Brexit to happen or not happen, you know, for Scottish independence to happen or not, or not happen, for you know, the, the peaceful trans transfer of power in the United States. Um, but I, I, I do think um, you know, it's inherently fraught 
I think actually putting cards on the table, being upfront about uh, the tension is, you know, it's not a bad starting point. I I'm not pretending it's, it's, it's easy, but I think actually almost to neutralize the idea that this is some sort of woke political behavior rather than sure. commercial interest and fiduciary duty, sure. um, explaining the self-interest of business is, sure. Uh, is sure. fair. Um, now oh, also, I, I'd say one. I'd say one other go, thing. Go actually, Matthew, while I think of it, you know, there is safety in numbers. You know, yeah. so when Company X sticks their head above the parapet, it's going to get shot off. When the kind of the CBI or you know or or the Chamber of Commerce, yeah. uh, you know, when its members get together and say, "Look, you need to speak on our behalf," um, it is much less. Yeah, there's, they're taking much less individual risk. And I, I think working through those those institutions, which themselves are often imperfect and not, not always representative of uh, majority views. Yeah. Is, well, I mean, I think after after the referendum vote in 2016 here, the CBI were cast into the outer darkness for a while, weren't they? I mean, you know, their calls weren't returned. They were, you know, but they were definitely, to use Thatcher's expression, not one of us. Um there was some yeah, and I don't, questions. I don't know what they feel. How you know how much damage they feel? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, certainly, Labour tomorrow is having its first big um, get together of business people. I think down in Canary Wharf, where they're expecting three or four hundred people. You've got Justin King, who was the CEO of Sainsbury's, is going to be speaking at that. Um, but listen, we got some questions from people in the audience. Um, one from our friend Ethna O'Leary. She says, and I was going to ask you about this. <clears throat> Aren't larger brands simply more exposed to the pressure exerted by the public through social media? That if you do come up and you 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 say something, then you can be, you know, drowned in a in a wave of opprobrium these days. Yeah, um, that's absolutely true. I think um, I'd also add that um, big businesses are much more polarizing than small businesses. So you're probably familiar with the Edelman Trust Barometer, which is a sort of annual poll, um, which always comes out and says, actually, the public doesn't really trust government. They don't really trust the media. They certainly don't trust the media. Um, they don't trust other institutions. But business is the most trusted institution in the room. Uh, and people expect a lot of CEOs to speak in. When you, there's a separate Gallup poll about what people think about business in the US. And if you look at that, um, trust in small business, you know, mom and pop, uh, entrepreneurs, startups, is through the roof. Trust in big business is about 18%. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, Republicans used to trust big business more than Democrats. They now trust it less. So uh, there's been a slight, there's quite a serious slide since the election of Donald Trump back yeah. in 2016. So uh, there's that that context, the, the politicization of big, big business and the, the distrust of corporate power. Um, I think um, the larger brands are, you know, getting better at understanding what's noise and what they need to respond to, you know, yeah. who's actually influential on social media. I think, you know, a tweet saying that you're, you know, there's rat poison in your, in your sandwich is yeah, yeah. damaging than, you know, one saying that you're, uh, you voted for the wrong candidate. Yeah. Now we've got one from Lachlan Hickey. Hi Lachlan. Your, Andrew, your point about self-interested versus woke is a tricky one. Isn't there a middle ground where business health and well-being of society are, are interdependent? The risk of promoting self-interest as a primary business driver reinforces the essential problem of business and people being driven by self-interest rather than both self-interest like and helping others and caring for others, which is the wholeness of the human person. Uh, you're right. It's, I mean, 
I I think I very rarely speak to a CEO, and I you know had one of these conversations last night without them raising the word purpose or mission. And you know, a successful business these days, successful CEO these days, is trying to motivate their people by saying, you know, by selling our widgets, you're making the world a better place. And you know, there's a you will go to your grave knowing that you that you did something more than just you know make us make make our shareholders money. And so um, I, I don't I don't want to be entirely cynical about this. At the same time, there is this attack, um, particularly coming from the right, that um, that some sort of social purpose is a, is is negligent of the shareholder responsibility, the fiduciary duty to make money for the owners of the company. And I think, as I said at the beginning, most of these companies have. Uh, now convince themselves that the risk of inaction on environmental issues, on on social challenges like you know, racial equity, is so great that it is worth spending the time and effort um, uh, and investing, uh, you know, to, to to remediate those risks. Uh, that that is actually in the shareholders' interest too. So yeah. I I, um, I don't see. I, I think it's very important to frame this in the broader. Uh, in that broader framing, framing of purpose and mission and the human uh, factor no, here. No, I don't, we can't let you go without talking about probably the biggest contribution to, to global business that the States has made in the last 20, 30 years, and that's big tech. Yeah. Now, it, we've thought about this a lot at Jericho, and I think it's true to say that big tech's sort of spiritual home was the West Coast of America in the 60s where it was a very liberal and empowering and democratizing thing. It was a hippie thing. You know, you've only got to look at those kind of early days of what those companies became. And it seems to many people that it's turned into something really quite illiberal and, and controlling. We've had, we've had all the scandals to do with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. We've had all the, you know, recent talk with Musk and, and, and Twitter and everything. So I wonder if, <clears throat> that important part of, of business has become a hindrance to, you know, free democracies because of the ability that it, that exists out there to manipulate it. Yes, I was thinking about the famous hippie Elon Musk with the handgun on his side uh, bedside table. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, in both sides of the Atlantic, we've had... Um, you know, a sort of all-consuming debate about regulating uh, big tech. Yeah, there's been much more done in, in Europe and the UK about this um, so far than, than in Washington. But there has been a dramatic change in the politics of big tech in Washington. You probably remember, you know, Obama with you know, virtually with his arm over the shoulders of the Google guys and Mark Zuckerberg in the when he was running for office in 2008. You know, this was the, the way, you know, that Democrats kind of mastery of social media was responsible for the blue wave, you know. Um, and this was, but even on the right, these companies were seen as great avatars of American entrepreneurialism. Yeah. This, these were the great, this is the American dream. It's great sort of startup success story, you know, writ large. Um, 
that has changed dramatically. You know, we have had the Elizabeth Warrens, the world worrying about it, antitrust, about corporate power, about sheer size, uh, lack of accountability of these companies. Now, you know, particularly um, under the Trump administration and since then, the right is extremely worked up about freedom of speech and whether these platforms are suppressing conservative viewpoints. Yeah. And that's at the heart of a lot of the Twitter tensions right now. But I think this is a, another perfect example of... What do we actually want when we want business to take a bigger role in society or in politics? You know, which business person are we thinking of? Are we thinking about Paul Polman or Elon Musk? You know, are we talking about Patagonia or Saudi Aramco? You know, are we talking, are we going to leave freedom of speech to Mark Zuckerberg? Um, this, it becomes very queasy here and i, th- and I, I mean, suspect do you want to live in zuckerberg's metaverse do you want to you know conduct your lives and democratic I, I, processes I, I, and vote I, I, within I, that it's just I, creepy beyond words isn't it <laughs> i've been lucky to have legs this long and I, I, I quite enjoy keeping them but the uh so I, i've not felt terribly compelled to live in the metaverse but the um but you know i'm also old enough to know that some of these ideas do, do catch on eventually so uh i remember second life first time around but uh, this is a uh the, the technology and the, the bandwidth has improved since then but um so look i th- i think we are going to see a continued fight about whether this is left to corporate power or whether we do see regulation i suspect that a lot of these fights are going to be settled by uh by, by legislation and regulation in the end and you know we're seeing that happen faster in Europe than in the US, but there is a fascinating confluence of interests from the left and the right that make me think we are going to see some action in the US. Yeah. Now, Tom Levitt said, trade organisations claim they speak with authority on behalf of businesses in their sector, but their avenues of accountability are obscure, to say the least. They're often less woke and more conservative than the leaders of their sector. Unilever and Coca-Cola are among those which have reviewed their membership of such organisations. How important are such groups and how do we persuade governments not to listen to them unless they can demonstrate that their claims are genuinely supported by their membership? I, I mean, fascinating. This even, even happened in the in the in big oil. You know, the the a lot of the, the biggest oil companies have actually reviewed their membership of the American Petroleum Institute because they thought it was dragging its feet too much on climate change. And this is one of those examples actually where the biggest brands who are so exposed to the beatings on social media have you know grudgingly or otherwise realized they need to move first faster on climate change to at least have a, a story to tell. And we can we can all disagree about how credible some of those stories are but um but i i think we've we've seen a bit of this in the past when the business round table is now as a representative of the top 200 the ceos of the top 200 or 300 companies in in the us and that's actually a breakaway from the us chamber of commerce from a couple of decades uh, sorry from i think it's just had its 50th anniversary this week. I maybe it's like 30th. I think it's the 50th. Um, but that that broke away from the US Chamber of Commerce at a time when um big companies decided that the chamber was going, it was becoming too reactionary and not representing the views of big multinationals. So there is some some uh history here, some precedent for this. I think we are seeing much more attention 
page from big business to what their trade organizations are doing and whether they really represents the, represent their interests and whether they're working effectively. There's a huge political fight from the right over the US Chamber of Commerce. At the moment, there's an attempt to set up a breakaway, more conservative chamber, which is amusing, you know, given the conservative reputation of the US Chamber of Commerce. But um, at the same time, there, I think what Tom gets to in his comment here is there's a fundamental lack of transparency. And yeah, in the US, we have you know all sorts of um, uh, ways of giving money to politicians, which are deeply uh, untransparent. But uh, I think, you know, there's... We talk a lot about corporate responsibility. We don't talk as much about corporate accountability. I think one of the things we are seeing now, one of the shifts in this debate, is there is much more pressure from shells, actually, from, from, from employees, from consumers, from activists, for greater accountability and visibility. There are some quite geeky you know, small projects to improve the reporting of corporate donations from big companies. They, they are actually making some headway. You know, the, the biggest companies are responding and at the very least giving more detail on what their, um, their sort of political action committees are doing. I mean, but yeah. I think that's very true. And you can see what is going to happen now is there is going to be increasing concern about greenwash, isn't there? You've had those um, raids in Germany in the summer on one of the, I think, a Deutsche Bank Associated yes. company where, where you know, where, where authorities are coming in and saying, you know, you're saying things about the ESG credentials of your products and things that are not true. And yeah. I think because it's a rather, relatively immature world, isn't it, at the moment, that there isn't there hasn't been enough rigor you can sort of put a green badge on anything and particularly in in you know in the investment world yeah you know tick that box do, don't you think that whole thing is going to become more rigorous now though? i do i mean it was a yeah there were a lot of well-meaning meaning individuals uh and institutions in the middle of it but fundamentally esg has been an extremely lucrative bandwagon for the investing industry and a lot of people jumped on it you know some well-meaning and some uh slightly uh, shadier and i think you know now that it's such a big business. Now that so much money is at stake, um, we are seeing regulators and consumer protection groups uh, you know, pay much closer attention. And we're also seeing you know, internal whistleblowers, as in the TWS uh, case, who have seen it from the inside, went in uh, with a mandate to, uh, to, to genuinely make investing more sustainable and more sort of um, human focus and more equitable and say so this is what's happening we've just rebadged uh dirty funds that we were already selling to the public so there there is a a cleaning up process happening i think there's a esg itself has a, a genuine branding problem now it's been the most a, a very lucrative effective brand as well as helping to coordinate genuine action from uh from you know, genuine people um but two things can be true at once you know we can be seeing more progress progress on on measurement on reporting on standards on oversight on accountability and yet there can also be plenty of bad actors and uh but we're, we're seeing more of these bad actors exposed but at, but at the same time aren't you detecting and i've certainly heard this in recent months a lot of people senior people within business since the you know, the, the beginning of the war in Ukraine, asking to be given permission to backpedal on the climate change stuff in particular. I, I heard um, one last week saying, 
you know, now is not the time, you know, to be le lecturing um, developing nations in Africa about their carbon use and stuff like that. You know, government's responsibility is, this, you know, the security of their people first. I mean, I think the atmosphere has changed since what Putin did in March, hasn't it? And I, I mean, I think there are some, you've got to break it down a little bit. There's yeah. a very, very specific issue around energy supply um, and energy security. This is definitely emboldened the fossil fuel industry to say, look, you know, we told you um, the world could not operate without oil and gas, you know, uh, overnight. Um, uh, and they, so they, 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 they do feel emboldened. And um, I think there are plenty of, um, CEOs out there who always felt a bit grudging about their net zero agenda, who've been quite happy to say, look, you, you've got to give us more time. You know, they can't, yeah. it'd be uh, reckless to, to change this overnight. And yet, you know, more and more companies are setting net zero targets. Yeah. They, you know, not all of them are everything there. They, they, they look in a press release. Um, but I do think the broad direction of travel is as a large company, you need to have a credible uh, emissions reduction agenda. You need to have actually a credible, broader nature and environmental strategy. And you know, natural capital is the, the the other new buzzword that's cropped up alongside net zero. So suddenly, you, you know, like Walmart, you have to care about the bees and the, uh, the grazing land and the the, the the tuna fishing waters in the in the Pacific. But um, I I don't see that going into reverse. I think a lot of business leaders are quite happy not to. You know, to keep their head down a little bit, not to have to talk so much about it. it, when, especially if they don't have a great story to tell, you know, if it's going to take them longer than they think to change their business. But ultimately, I, I think we have to separate out the, the extraordinary one-off effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on yep. energy supply from that broader direction of travel, which I don't think has changed very much. I think it's also important to remember, Andrew, isn't it, that in a week when we're you know, we've been hearing about the tawdry side of business and pandemic with, you know, the Michel Moan thing. The other side of it was that it was business that developed the, the vaccines, you know, albeit with the help of largely, you know, university-based, you know, state researchers. Yep. And I wonder, in a funny sort of way, is if, you know, they didn't, I, I don't know how they kind of approach trying to sort of publicize what what they've done and the you know the university beneficial natures of that. But I often get the impression these days that <clears throat> when they are out there doing good good stuff, there's almost a sort of a reluctance to say anything about it these days for fear of being pilloried. And of course, you know, as anticipated, you have the whole rise of the anti-vaxxers and all the rest of it. And you can kind of understand why they just want to get on with the job and keep their heads down. I think this goes a little bit to the question we've got in the chat, the questions we have from Martin Knox yeah. and, and Lachlan. Um, I think some of this goes to, you know, how, how does business earn its right to be at the table? Some of it goes to capacity. You know, what are we good at? You know, business at its best is competent. It, you know, it, is, it is functional. And, you know, we, we, it's become a sort of... Um, uh, truism to talk about dysfunctional government but ultimately i think we are looking at a future of more public private multi-stakeholder to use a ghastly davosian word uh partnerships uh where 
we, you know, large corporations are learning that they do need to work uh, with policymakers, they need to work with NGOs, uh, they need to bring activists inside the tent uh, to tell them what they need, you know, uh, where, where, where can they meet in the middle um, uh, to, to solve some of these problems. Um, and academia uh, is among those. And there's a good um, interview with the Vice Chancellor of Oxford University and yeah. the FT this week, well, I yeah. might enjoy it, but um, who talks about, you know, that thinking that actually the, the, uh, the, the Pfizer didn't get yeah, yeah. The, the, the commercial end of the, the Oxford vaccine development didn't get as much credit as it might have done otherwise. But the um, AstraZeneca wasn't it? Uh, but the, the I I think ultimately what business has to bring to the table is money uh, when when governments don't have enough of that and capability, um, and that's a much less sort of political notion, you know. So. We, we, we're good at this stuff, you know, how can we help? It's not quite as controversial. Now, yeah, on the money side, I would also say, you know, the thing that never gets mentioned in discussions about businesses' role in society is how much tax should business pay? You know, yep. if we generally organise our societies by, you know, putting putting money in and then getting governments to spend it, um, the companies haven't been particularly interested in that, that version of... Um, no. Well, that's a whole different conversation. And I'm conscious that we're just past six now and we promised that we'd let you go into the office. I mean, I think to sum up, your mention of competence is important, isn't it? Because we've certainly felt on this side of the Atlantic, there's been a marked lack of competence within the political sphere over recent years. And if you're incompetent... What's well, brought that on, Matthew? <laughs> whether you're big or small in business, if you're incompetent, if you lack capabilities, you'll go bust, won't you? It's as simple as that. If, you're, if your organisation is no good at what it does, you know, it, it, it's a rough old world. And, and, and ultimately, if you misread your stakeholders, yeah. if, you, if you lose legitimacy with your employees, with your customers, with your, actually with the government stakeholders as well, you know, so this is a, it's a very delicate thing to to navigate, and my, you know, I th I think what all of this comes back to is we are in the middle of a massive uh, debate about what the proper place of business is in society. There is no nobody wrote down a social contract. You know, when I went to uh, see Walmart in Bentonville, the museum there, funded by Walton family money, has a copy of the Constitution yeah. and a copy of the Bill of Rights and yeah. you know, Abraham Lincoln's original copy of the Emancipation Pro Proclamation. So, and I read them, you know, each, and there's not a line in there saying what the proper role of corporations is no. in this. So this is. Yeah, we're fumbling our way to some sort of new social contract between business and government and all the rest of us. And it's inevitably going to be fraught. I do think that yeah, the balance of power has changed as corporate power has grown enormously in recent years. And it's really important that we figure this stuff out. Mm -hmm. Well, Andrew, thank you very much. And may the fumbling long continue. Um, it's been a terrific conversation, and I think your moral money stuff is 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 so important, isn't it? And you you know you've been sort of almost on your own as a as a publication going with that, haven't you? Um, we it, it, we've uh, uh, I mean we always felt that 
there were publications out there even when we launched more money more than three years ago that were doing part of it so there were people looking at green finance or impact investing or you know corporate social responsibility but what we wanted to do was create an umbrella brand and a sort of single meeting place for people attacking the same sort of problem from different yeah. angles you know from invest from asset managers and asset owners banks companies you know law firms accountants standard setting standard setters policy makers and so that's i think what the the value that moral money's um, provided but if you if you don't know it check it out and we're always yeah. very very keen for feedback so we'd love to hear mm. from anybody on this call um, they want to see us do more of it's a very 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 dynamic subject or series of subjects which sure. every company is grappling with and we're going to be doing much much more of it so we'd love to stay in touch with as many of you as possible well thank you so much for your time <clears throat> now you're into the office to edit your pages I, I, I just want to say thank you for reading some of my stories, Matthew. No, yeah, I don't normally count on people doing that much preparation, but they were very, very well-informed questions. And, and it's absolutely the right subject to be discussing right now. It's, uh, it's hugely, hugely important it to is. all of us. Well, look, and thank you to everyone in the audience for, for, for tuning in. We will um, write it up and produce a piece which we'll send out to all of you. And don't forget... As Neil said at the beginning, this is something that we really want to work on hard next year because it's an important subject and Jericho is ideally suited to bring people together. So if, you, if you're interested in getting involved, that you want to support us commercially, um, that would be absolutely terrific. Get in touch with Neil or me or, or Becky. And we will see you again with another guest in the new year, I hope, probably in late January or February. So thank you very much for coming along and thank Andrew again. Thanks for having me. Bye now.